everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beans and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with them, we have with us my co-host and Hall of Famer, just back uh, from being there at Wimbledon. He was there the whole second week. He's now back in the States. Cannot wait to talk about uh, yesterday's men's final, as well as a few other events that happened. Steve Flink, welcome back. Hope you had a fantastic second week at Wimbledon. Oh, I did, David. It was very enjoyable. I had fun with our podcast early in the trip, and then the rest of the week was pretty spectacular in so many ways. So looking forward to talking about it with you now. Yeah, I mean, we're going to go into some specifics, um, but just high level. I thought yesterday's final between Nick and Novak, I thought it was very well played by both. I thought Nick played great. I didn't think, you know, again, ignore the chirping to the box and the umpire, just I'm talking tennis only. I thought Nick played very well, including when it's someone's first time in a Grand Slam final, you don't know if they're going to, how they're going to react. They're going to be overwhelmed. I didn't think Nick, it didn't appear Nick felt like that at all. Obviously he won the first set, but he looked good right out of the gate. He did. He did. He looked very poised from the first game on. And then Novak got a, took a little bit of an unnecessary gamble, I thought, at two all and break point down. He went for a very big second serve about 111 miles an hour down the tee and netted it. And I didn't think he really needed to do that. He just saved one break point, uh, you know, with, with good depth at forcing Nick into air. I, I thought he would have been better just to play a safer second serve and try and work the point. But so be it. But that's what cost him the first set because otherwise – Novak was holding easily. Nick was holding easily. And finally at 5-4, and Nick had a deuce game on his serve, but he still kept he still kept his wits about him. He still maintained that composure and closed it out nicely 6-4. So there was Novak for the third round in a row uh, down a set. Of course, he'd been down two sets against Sinner, but, but uh, it, it, he uh, <laughs> there wasn't much to argue with in terms of his play the, the rest of the way. Correct. And, you know, I thought Nick did a very good job in the first set of not giving Novak a lot of rhythm. There were not a lot of long points that were played. And I think the key to Nick winning yesterday's match was to keep those points short and to not give Novak any rhythm. And I thought I thought a critical juncture of the match and I tweeted about it right when it happened was one one in the second set. It was 30 all. David, just quickly before we get to that, because we agree about that one all game in the second set, but just quickly, you're right that Nick was, was aggressive when he needed to be keeping the point short, but he got into some semi-long exchanges with Novak. And the reason why he was able to do it so well was the controlled aggression off his forehand and then the backhand just steering it back or nudging it back. The with a shuffle, it's like a shuffle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He shovels it back. He, he, then sometimes hit sort of a, a semi-sliced, giving him no pace. So he he was very patient. That impressed me because it was nothing reckless about the way he played in that first set or really at any stage of the match. So Novak knew at the end of that set, he, he sensed that Nick was ready to stay out there and not only blast away for winners, but, but there was going to be a willingness when he had to, to rally. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I just, I don't know throughout four sets if that was going to be his most successful play and, and we'll get oh, to the oh it, it was never going to be his most successful play i'm saying but sometimes novak in a, it forced him into it the openings weren't there for nick novak's depth was so good his ball control his ability to move nick around the court but what i'm saying is nick didn't just go blindly for winners when he was in trouble there he tried to hang in those points 
and show Novak that he would pay that price. And that that did impress me, that that attitude of, of I'll, I'll, I'll do some defending if I have to. He also chased down some drop shots very nicely. Mm-hmm. Nick was really pretty much doing it all. And uh, now now let's turn to one all second set. Yeah, it, it was one all and it was 30-30. It was 30 all on Novak serve. Um, and they played two very long points. Um, and they were long physical points and, and both won by Novak. And I, I said to myself, you know, obviously, like what you said, you can't be offensive if you're in a total defensive position. But I said, Nick, for, I said, if Nick, to, to win this match, even on neutral balls, Nick's going to have to go big because those two points, I felt, kind of flipped the match a little bit with Novak winning that game. Um, yeah, but the, second, know, for the first one, you know, he just he basically outsteadied him. The second one, he ended up winning with a little backhand cross-court drop, uh, Novak. So he he he... He looked up at his corner after that point, David. I saw him look up at his honorage because he knew how important that was. And he also was very proud of himself for how he'd responded because if 30 all goes the other way and he gets down an early break in the second, it could be big trouble. And, yes. and I carried right over into the next game when he broke it love is that he really was now starting to feel it. He was getting the confidence and he felt like that that, that was really – I mean, he got to do the last game of the first set, but that was the first time he'd had a real chance there to break Nick, and he took it, and he took it quite well. And then, of course, that led him all the way to 5-2 and for serving for the set at 5-3. And that was another, I would call, a golden Novak moment in the match in the sense that he, I thought he had maybe, he had just pressed a little bit. He'd start, he'd double fall it. He'd made a couple of errors. He's down love 40. I mean, Nick made one great running forehand. But I, I thought, no, I, I thought it was going to be very tough to get out of that love forty deficit. But Novak patiently and purposely did get out of it, and that was a critical hold because it got him to one set all. It did a five three love forty. It's just one of the. It's one of a few points that when Nick laid his head down on the pillow last night and for uh, you know a few days, maybe a couple of weeks going forward, he's gonna he's gonna remember that. That's gonna hurt on the third set. 4440 love Nick serving. I mean, this is, I mean, you're one set all Wimbledon final 4440 love. You have to get out of that game. Novak gets it back to Deuce. Um, Nick double faults. Novak takes advantage, serve, breaks him, serves for it. Five four and holds and wins that set six four. A couple of things, David. Novak at the, in the first game of that set had a couple of break points. Nick held on. Then there was another deuce game. He'd been sort of knocking on the door. And it was ironic, I thought, that he'd finally get the break in a game where it looked like he had no chance to get the break. While I thought he was going to do it in the first game. And Nick fended off those break points very impressively. So uh, I also think Novak didn't give himself quite enough credit for what he did do to break Nick from 40 Love Down. Because the first one, Nick came in, he tried to serve in volley. He, yep. he tried the way of volley. And Novak was able to pass him. You know, then then uh, then he, then he coaxed an error, and then at forty thirty he had a deep return that set up a forehand inside in winner. So Novak, to, you know, play he he had he gave him cause for consternation, cause for nerves, and that in a way that sort of provoked it provoked the double fault. I thought that he had, had played three really good points to get back to Deuce. Yeah, I, I mean, it's those few. The last- 
the last one, sorry, you know, he, you know, he just wisely just played a solid return and, and, and Nick made the error, but uh, it was, it was very, it, that was kind of Nadal like of what Djokovic did there. We've seen Rafa so many times be 40 love down in a game and pull it out one way or another love 40 on his serve or 40 love on the other guy's serve the old motto that Nadal plays every point like match point. Well, Novak dug in there. And it was incredibly beneficial that he could be serving up five, four for a two sets to one lead instead of serving to stay in the set at four, five. Critical. I mean, two critical games, one in the second, one in the third. I mean, the, the, the differences, as we say all the time, are so, so small. Four set again, I thought high quality of play. Um, when it got to a breaker and someone tweeted this, it's so funny. And we all know how good Novak is in the most, you know, critical stages of matches. He goes into locked in mode. There was something on social media. Someone's like, Nick's going to have to serve 80%. Novak's going to have to have seven errors. I mean, it was something like ludicrous. And it said it ended like for even Nick to even have a chance to win the breaker. And it was, it was funny because we all know how good and how solid Novak is in the most important matches of, of, of that breaker. He goes yeah. up. You channeled it there, David, beautifully. And, and and Nick, of course, started with that, going for that big second serve, essentially going for a second serve ace and double falling on the first point, challenged and lost the challenge. Novak goes out to two love and then made his only mistake of the entire sequence. Only error. Yep. And that uh, a forehand on four surprising where you could feel him tighten up. But then what really impressed me was Nick got two first serves in in a row after that. And Novak won both points. And, and that's when I think he really had it under control to be serving at 4-1. And then he methodically worked his way to 6-1. And eventually, after Nick had taken both of his service points, Novak closes it out 7-3 with a, a good approach to the back end. And Nick makes the errant pass. But it was a very impressive closing act for Novak. I think he would have been fine in the fifth set, physically and mentally. But on the other hand, the crowd would have gotten even more involved. Nick would have been exhilarated and it, w- it could have gotten a bit dangerous in the fifth. And Novak understood that, which is why he played that tiebreak with such complete tunnel vision. You know, I, and we all know how great Novak is. And we're going to get into, you know, so many of his accolades. And we all know he's Novak could be arguably the greatest of all time. Right. Um, Nick knew. I mean, Nick said in the press conference, he's like, look. My level is right there. I mean, he was he was happy with how he played. And I think everybody who watched the match, no one's going to say he played bad. I thought Nick played well. It was just a few crucial moments in the match. Um, Novak, I mean, what else can you say? 21 slams. It's his seventh Wimbledon title. Fourth in a row, right? 18, 19. No, there was no Wimbledon in 2020. Right. 21 right. and 22. He's 28. No, Steve. He's 28. No, right now on his consecutive win streak at Wimbledon. Plus, he has not lost on that center court since 2013 to Andy Murray because the two losses that he suffered were both out on court one okay. So, in that span. So it, he has an even greater inner security when he steps on center. I think none of the top players enjoy playing on court one as much as they do on center. First of all, they don't get on there as often. And secondly, it just plays differently. The atmosphere is different. Djokovic feels like the center court, that's his home. Yeah. And and it, and it shows. And I think that's important. And you're right. Then the 28th straight is remarkable. And now he is the only man, only man to have won two majors at least seven times, two of the four by, by seven Wimbledons and nine Australians. So 
another uh, another feather in his cap. I know seven was important with him. You know, Roger has has the eight, right? But seven was important because he tied Pete. And I know Pete Pete Sampras was very influential uh, to Novak starting uh, playing tennis, right? And we all know the books behind you. Um, you know, you you authored the book Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. Um, Pete had a lot to do with with Novak picking up a racket and wanting to be as good as as he has been over his career, and he's still going. Talk a little bit about when you when you uh, you know interviewed both Pete and Novak in your book, how the mutual respect for each other plays itself oh, yeah. out. It, it, the reverence for the reverence for each other was just striking because I think the public maybe mistakenly believes that Pete's admiration uh, among the current icons is solely for Roger. That's not the case. He, he doesn't know Rafa as well as the other two, but he admires Rafa, but he really does know Novak and, and likes Novak. I think every bit as much as he in, enjoys being around Roger. Now, interesting story. Novak mentions on the court about he, watching Pete play, which is something I talked to him about for the book about how that was the first match he saw on television, Pete's first Wimbledon win, and he calls it 92. Well, 92 was his coach, Goran Ivanisevich, losing yeah. to Agnes five sets. It was a funny mistake. But I had the same discussion with him back in 2019. He started to say 92. I said, Novak, it was actually 93. So, okay, sorry, 93. So he knew. I. It's funny that I'm, maybe I'm not the only one that's made that correction with him, but here he was still slipping back into 92 because he wants to believe he was four or five when it happened. In fact, he was six. It's no big deal. It's just funny how certain facts get kind of, you know, they get locked in your mind, mistakes like that that are minor. And uh, it, so he's just he's just forgotten. And even Isovich was amused, too, because he went in such an important moment in his life. Exactly. Even Isovich isn't going to forget 1992, unfortunately, because he played that great final with Andre. But yeah, um, you're well, obviously. It was Goran's first final, and then he lost two to Pete in 94 and 98 before he finally came through as a wild card in 2001. But the Agassi one was certainly winnable, and it went right down to the wire in the fifth set with Goran getting broken in the last game at four or five in the fifth. So it was really, it, it is one he'll never forget. But interestingly, Novak keeps wanting to say 92. Yeah. The box you brought up about the mutual respect, and it came through so loud and clear when I spoke to both of them about each other. And, and I, I, I think Novak really pretty much idolized Pete. And one of the things he said was he started to root religiously for Pete at that, from that point on of the 93 Wimbledon. His father deliberately tested him by starting to root for uh he'd root for courier and agassi <laughs> just be you know and novak would say no pete is the guy and, and i thought that was a very funny story coming from novak about about that but he certainly holds pete sampras in the highest regard unbelievable and i think you know you really you really felt i i applaud novak for for kind of really going kind of deep in his interview with Patrick um, right off the court. I mean, he gave a lot in that interview and you could tell, I mean, Australia, obviously that would have a huge effect on anyone who had to go through that ordeal, especially someone who, you know, number one in the world affected him. Um, he even talked about going to a few tournaments after the people were looking at him kind of, kind of funny. Um, you know, Roland Garros didn't play out exactly as how he wanted it. Obviously he lost a Rafa, no shame in that, but this was, this was an important, a very important tournament for him to win because his status is uncertain for these next two slams. And I think for all tennis fans, we hope that he can somehow get in. I'll ask you, do you, 
as of today, he can't. But do you think he's there's still a chance he may get into New York? Well, it's going to depend a lot on the CDC. It's going to depend on whether what the regulations are, if they change. And I don't think that's likely, but I think he's just hoping that maybe at that point in the summer is get closer to the time that they make the decision that uh, the unvaccinated can come into the country, in which case he'd be on a plane in an instant. And I remember, Steve, before, just for our listeners, right now, if you're an American tennis player and you're unvaccinated, you can play. This is the tennis sangren argument. Tennis sangren is unvaccinated and he can play. Whereas Novak, he's not from this country. He can't. Yeah, which, by the way, I think is a mistake from the USDA. I, I don't blame them if they want to say that, that the unvaccinated cannot play, but it should apply to Americans. Be consistent. And Djokovic has brought that up, and I think Sandgren would agree with him. It, it's yeah. not really, doesn't make sense. Okay, he's American, but if he's unvaccinated, then supposedly he's posing the same risk to others exactly. around the locker room. So we'll see what happens with the Open. It's been a hard luck place for Djokovic, who's won the title three times, which is very little for him considering his hardcore prowess and nine Australian Opens and the fact that he may be the greatest hardcore player we've ever seen. Uh, and I'm sure he would love to be back to try to get that elusive fourth. Uh, as far as the next one, David, whatever happens with New York, it's impossible to know what the regulations are going to be in Australia either. All I'll say about that is I do not believe the Australian government is going to carry on a grudge match and say, we reserve the right after this last time to extend this to three years. I think they realize that Novak suffered immeasurably by missing it even one year. So my feeling is there's still a, a, there's still a reasonable chance that we will see him back in Melbourne, perhaps even a better chance than seeing him in New York. But I, I would love to see it work out for both events because obviously you just don't want to be missing one one of the game's central players at the major events. Yeah, again, as, as a tennis fan, a hundred percent. We'll see what happens, but yeah, you want, you want the best players playing the most important events in any sport. So um, we'll see how that plays out. I, you know, I wanted to uh, hear your thoughts to um, Rafa, who was hurt during his match with, with, with Taylor um, people yeah. in his box told him to quit, to retire. Rafa got through it, um, won it. He would have played Nick in the semis. I think tennis fans uh, lost out on on watching that match because that match would have been really, really fun to watch as well. The winner of that match, it would have been interesting to see how how tough that match, how that played in the final. Let's say Nick beats Rafa. Maybe Nick doesn't play as well against Novak or vice versa. We'll never know that. Um, But again, as as sports fans, as tennis fans, we were all disappointed that semi didn't get played. Yeah, I had very mixed feelings about it, David, because I felt that if Nadal had gone out on the court and played anything like he did against Taylor Fritz, all due respect to Taylor Fritz, he was not going to beat Nick Kyrgios in that condition. And it, it, and it, it probably would have been worse because he put himself through nearly four and a half hours against Taylor. It's a long yeah. match, lots of running it. Therefore, he might have been, it, it might have exacerbated, and I suspect it did because of what the tear we saw the abdominal tear, the size of it. It, it. it seemingly got much worse over the course of that match into the next day. So my feeling is, had he tried out of just allegiance to the game and and professionalism to go out there and play it, I, I don't think it would have gone well. I think what you're imagining and what I would have been hoping for was that a healthy Rafa playing yes. 
Then we get a great semi and they split two Wimbledon matches over the years in 14 and 19. They were almost identical where each time it was Kyrgios in four in 14, Nadal in four in 19. And each time the winner won two of his three sets in tiebreak. Yes. Oh, it, this, I think we could have had a match like that this year had Nadal been healthy. But listen, he never looked entirely right to me throughout this tournament. I mean, I never thought he was in, at his peak. And, and then when the, once he went through that ordeal with Taylor, there was just going to be, he, he, there was, it would be impossible even. He mentioned two more matches. And I think what he meant by that, if he'd been lucky enough that Nick had imploded, <laughs> something crazy had happened, but then he was still going to have to play a final with Novak and he just wasn't going to be up to that. So it's sad, yeah. but look at the positive side, David, it was almost miraculous what he did in Melbourne to win his second Australian Open. And coming from two sets down and two, three, love 40 in the third against Medvedev in the final and winning an earlier five setter with Shapovalov and then winning the French after having that, having re-injured the foot or aggravated the foot in Rome and coming there and getting all those injections and somehow getting through the French. So he was living very dangerously this year in a lot of ways and had already won two majors and so I think you balance that up against what happened with Wimbledon. Maybe it's not quite as sad. And then you also figure he takes his time off now and he, he still hopes to be ready for the U S open. And I suspect he will be. Uh, I, I, the only, I agree a hundred percent with you. I mean, it had to kill him to, to not play because again, the calendar grand slam was at stake, Steve. It was, but I don't think in his mind it was realistic. That's my feeling. He would have thought about it seriously had he somehow gotten through Wimbledon. I don't think he was going to even think about it before Wimbledon, unlike Novak a year ago, who I think was already thinking about it, certainly once he won Roland Garros. Right. So, Rafa, I, I just don't think that his thinking was the same as Novak's a year ago. In the, and, and, and again, he would have altered his thinking had he somehow gotten through Wimbledon, but it, it wasn't really... It, to me, it was it was not likely to happen, but still, right. you know. I agree. And last year, I mean, Novak again, Novak winning the French was was crucial, which it's so hard for anyone to win the French. Once he did that, you knew he was the favorite at Wimbledon, which he yeah. want, which he wants. So, I mean, the pressure with Novak started like right after the French because they're like, oh, wow, this could really, really happen with Rafa. He wasn't a clear favorite to win Wimbledon. Not at all. Not at all. And he hasn't won Wimbledon since 2010 when he took his second title. And so it, it's, it's been tough going for him there, even though he's had a num some great tournaments. So I think he can, he'll handle that part. And then he'll still be a threat in New York to be sure. Yes. As long as he's, as long as he's healthy, the right. abdominal will clear up for sure. The question is going to be the foot on the hard courts. Now the foot on the hard courts held up remarkably well in Australia. I would never have expected that he'd win the Melbourne warm-up event, the 250, then the Australian Open, and then Acapulco, all, all on hard courts before the foot started to act up some prior to the rib injury in Indian Wells. There was a lot of talk about the foot starting to bother him again. But until then, even on hard courts, it was holding up. Imagine if he wins the U.S. Open and the only loss in the calendar Grand Slam was a default in the semifinals of Wimbledon. Well, no, he's going to be certainly one of the prime contenders. And if Djokovic is, is not there, Rafa's chances in, increase, to be sure. Not, not that there won't be some, some dangerous players there to confront him, but Rafa's had, and he's won more Opens than Novak, surprisingly. He's got four U.S. Opens. He's had a great record on those hard courts in New York. So, He'll be looking forward to getting back there. Uh, in, 
in late August. And I, I think we're going to see him playing some great tennis at that time. Let me ask you this, and this is the million-dollar question. I don't even think Nick knows the answer to this. Going forward, do you see – and we, we won't say Clay because we know he doesn't love playing on that service, but do you see Nick consistently playing in the latter rounds of slams or you still see a lot of up and down with him? The latter. The latter. I'm not going to rule out that he's going to be back in this position somewhere once one or two more times. He's only 27. But look at even look at this tournament. Paul Jubb in the first round, 7-5 in the fifth. He squeaked it out. He In Nakashima, five-setter, granted, he had a shoulder issues that day. So it, uh, Tsitsipas in that contentious match, match close to taking him into, into a fifth set, very close. To, he lost the four-set tiebreaker, very close one. So I, I don't know. And it's a matter of how, can he stay healthy consistently? This is a, as healthy as he stayed for a sustained period in a long time to get to in two a grass slam court. for sure. Yes. Right. But getting to two grass court semis, then he had an abdominal injury in Mallorca, but he comes right back at Wimbledon. So it's been an impressive stretch for him physically as much as anything else. But no, I'm not counting on us seeing this too many more times. I'll be pleasantly surprised if, and when it does, but I certainly hope Nick will, will next year have, treat Wimbledon the same way and so I'm going all after the grass is my surface I'm going to do the same thing I'm going to play three grass court events and I'm going to come into to Wimbledon fully prepared it was an entertaining tournament again I was I was impressed with the quality of play in yesterday's final I didn't know how you knew Novak's level was going to be high he's got so much experience playing in big matches I didn't know how Nick would react I thought his level was was great Novak was just a little bit better um, his greatness and experience showed. Um, the race is on, Steve. 22 for Rafa, 21 for Novak. If no, This was a big one for Novak. If Novak didn't win Wimbledon, even if Rafa didn't, and let's say Rafa wins New York and Novak can't play it, you're at 23 and 20. That's a big difference. Now, 22, 21, they're neck and neck right away, right again. Absolutely. And he, don't think he wasn't well aware of that in the back of his mind, Novak. And uh, yeah, it was critical. It was critical that he win this tournament. I mean, uh, the first step, obviously, he saw Rafa was not going to be able to win it when he pulled out. Okay, fine. But he really wanted to make sure he got he secured the crown himself. And he's done so. And the bottom line is he should be around this game longer than Nadal. I really believe that Rafa's done remarkably well to uh, still be as good as he is now. He's missed 11. He's missed 11 majors. (laughs) Rafa's missed 11 majors because of injuries. And he still has 22. That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah, Yeah, it is crazy. But, you know, he's 36. And uh, he's a a beleaguered 36 in some respects with what he's been through. And so I'm just saying, I think Novak could be around a couple more years than Rafa, a year more. It's hard to know. And, and depending on the status of COVID and his issues there with getting into the events, I think he's going to he'll play more in the long run, I would think. And therefore, he may have more opportunities. That's why closing within one now is so important. After having caught him last year, he caught him by winning Wimbledon. He caught both Roger and Rafa. Now, the other interesting point we should discuss is Roger. I mean, can he possibly ever get back? to tie Novak. I really don't think so. I don't see how it's going to happen. 
He's going to turn 41 this summer. He's going to try to get back this fall, Labor Cup and Basel. And then if he plays Wimbledon next year, he'll be nearing 42. So I just don't think it's realistic for Roger Federer to win another major title. But these two, as you said, the race is on and, and you know, the, there's a potential for Rafa to win another French next year and Novak to defend Wimbledon and they, 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 they'll, they'll keep climbing. Is 25 the number? Is 24 the number? 25 the number? We don't know, but... Could be. Could be. You know, again, it depends. In, in Rafa's case, depends a lot of, on, the, on the status of that foot and avoiding uh, additional burdens, burdensome injuries like this abdominal one that caused him so much trouble at Wimbledon. I think that's, I think right there, the 24 or 25 is the, is the number. Someone who gets, who gets there, I think is going to, going to take it. But with that, you know, they just marvel at the three of these guys and what they continue to do. And I know Roger's been hurt for a, for a little while now. He's also the oldest one. Um, It's remarkable what they've done. And, And Steve, you've witnessed so many great, so many of the great ones. This is, this is something that, that we're most likely not going to see again. Oh, I don't, I, I don't think we are. I would, I was, but I, I just, it, it's been such a pleasure to watch all three. Frankly, I found it particularly inspiring when it comes to Wimbledon to see how much Djokovic has improved as a grass court player from the Djokovic who won for the first time at Wimbledon 11 years ago in 2011, defeating Rafa in the finals. And he was great that year to be sure. Don't get me wrong, but the kind of tennis he's playing now versus then the versatility, the craftsmanship, is so much greater in my mind and so much more impressive because, you know, when you're younger, it, it's sort of automatic pilot and you, you just go out there and, and it's not that he had no strategic acumen, but I just think there's a lot more there now. Yeah. hundred percent. Remarkable, remarkable stuff. Well, Hey, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, you know, you just landed a couple hours ago. If you're, if you're jet lagged, you certainly don't look at it. Uh, you look great. Uh, I know Newport. You always look forward to going down to Newport. So you're going to be heading down there in a little bit. Um, and then after Newport, we got the hardcore season, and which all leads up to to your home slam, your your home slam in New York. So we'll do hope, this several more times and looking forward to it. Yeah, David, I hope you're going to join me at the Open this year. Any, any we'll leave that open as a possibility. We'll see. <laughs> if not this year, we'll definitely we'll we'll make it work. So, um, Steve, thanks again, and and so glad you were able to get back to Wimbledon. I know, I think it was three years with with three years of you not being back there. And I'm right, glad yeah, funny when they didn't play, and 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 obviously last year I chose to cover it from home because there were so many restrictions. So yeah, I hadn't been been there since nineteen. So it was it was a joy to be back on on those on those hallowed grounds. Awesome. Awesome. All right. We'll do this again soon. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you, David.